Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Grey Viking Games. Check them out with our affiliate code link in the description. Hey everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and this week we're going to do something a little bit different than normal. This is the last week that I'm going to be discussing Midnight Hunt, because uh, next week we should have all the information to start getting into anticipating Crimson Vow. So, this set uh, was on a pretty short release cycle. Uh, it was not the current draft format for as long as most sets, so we didn't get to all the archetypes. So I want to do a few different things this episode. I want to talk about the uh, evolution of this format, what happened and why over the course of the format, and then also just touch quickly on kind of big picture stuff on all of the archetypes that I didn't get to talk about throughout through the rest of this season. So that's the plan here. Historically, I, well, not historically, in general, I am very resistant to saying anything that is both wrong and unfounded. And so I only say things that I'm very, very confident about or can cite my reasons for believing, which has led to this uh, podcast having a pretty heavy focus on stats as a way to kind of ground my beliefs and tell people where like where I'm coming from and why I think the things that I think. I've gotten some feedback that uh, people who listen to me are probably somewhat more inclined to trust me than I expect, and that in general there might be a preference for kind of some more uh, looser subjective claims or maybe not as much focus on kind of pointing to this is where I'm coming from and why I believe this in terms of just like, look, these numbers back this up. And the reasoning is obviously still important, but maybe that I should just trust that I don't need to lean as much on numbers. So to explore steps in that direction, today I'm going to focus on kind of my experience and perceptions and how things have seemed to me rather than worrying about, you know, if I say this trend, if I say I've observed this trend, uh, that me, there's a chance that it's a fluke. I've drafted a good amount, but maybe it's just what I've seen and it's not what's happening. Uh, ordinarily, I would wanna, before saying, oh yeah, this has happened, I would want to say, here's like evidence about how it's happened for everyone else, according to like 17 lands metastats or whatever. For right now, I'm going to focus on um, just kind of what I think happened and why based on my own experiences and what I've seen. So disclaimer out of the way, let's get into it. So uh, my belief about kind of the meta arc or greater narrative of this format is uh, when it first released early on, blue and black was the best thing to be drafting because the blue and black cards are the best. Why are the blue and black cards the best? Well, I think the biggest picture is that the decayed mechanic was undercosted. It The additional cost on a card that was just like tacked on in development to um, how much more mana you have to spend or how much smaller your creature is or whatever to also get a 2-2 Decayed Zombie was really, really small relative to how good a 2-2 Decayed Zombie is. And a lot of that's because there was just a lot of support for getting something out of those zombies. That came primarily from the uh, handful of cards that allow you to tap an untapped creature for some kind of effect. Uh, well, tap three creatures, and then the Decayed Zombies let you do a lot of that. So that's Larder Zombie, Siege Zombie, and uh, Scabrand Lord. But also, with, like, anything that sacrifices them, and uh, Blades Stitch Scab um, as a way to get extra, like, just more damage out of them. All of the cards that, like, let you use zombies for mm, something extra was just really good at taking advantage of this these undercosted decayed zombies and leveraging them into strong longer games. That's a core that's a lot of it. Also, the black removal is just basically the best it's 
been since Urza's saga, I want to say, as far as just like the quality of black common removal in, in Limited. And Urza's saga, uh, for the vast majority of you who have probably never drafted that format, was a format that a lot of uh, experienced players believe was correct to force black in every single draft, no matter what was happening. So it's it's a very high bar for the power level of uh, black removal. So the removal in black was really good. And then also the creatures in black were really good, specifically the aforementioned Siege Zombie, as well as, of course, Diagraph Horde and Ecstatic Awakener are all just like absolute premium creatures. And then a step down from that, Hobbling Zombie was good it's not just important that it was like good slash a little bit better than it looks, but um, something that I'm going to talk about more later maybe, and is something that's true about the format, is the three mana common creatures are, for the most part, really, really bad. The additional value that you get by spending the third mana over the second mana is just tiny outside of the creatures that give you immediate value. So Eccentric Farmer is just way ahead of every other common creature. And then Hobbling Zombie and Falcon Abomination are the other cards that like give you some kind of extra value and don't really charge you anything for it, and they're good. And then most of the other commons are like three twos with some kind of meaningless trinket text and generally just not correct to prioritize or put in a deck or whatever. And so the fact that blue-black had kind of like a smoother, naturally better curve than other colors because it had playable threes was another uh, somewhat overlooked, I would guess, uh, appreciable strength of the archetype early on. I do think that blue-black was the best deck to draft for the first week or two. It was probably right to force it most of the time, but it got a ton of press early, and eventually people caught on. Uh, early in the format, matches in Mythics, uh, in Mythic, where just you played against Blue Black a huge portion of the time. But uh, the, the format did shift, and I think it shifted from everyone was drafting Blue Black. Blue Black started to get overdrafted. Eventually, reached a point where most of the time that I am drafting straight Blue Black now, and for the past few weeks. I have been very worried, even if it seems kind of open, that there are going to be multiple other people at the table looking for the same cards as me, and I'm going to end up a little bit short on playables, a little bit short on uh, power, not getting anywhere near the density of premium cards that you would have seen in the first week or two. Also, just as people figured out like which cards to put in their deck and figured out like, oh, the removal is really good against all the expensive creatures. I guess I should play the expensive creatures less. And, oh, okay, so I'm supposed to play all these value creatures and maybe, like, lower my curve. That hurt Black's positioning. And Blue-White uh, kind of rose as the clear, blessing, the clear best deck. And it might have been the best deck all along. Um, it did, I think, even early on have better stats than Black, than Blue-Black. But... It's a bit of a shallower color combination. There are fewer good cards in blue-white. It's great if you can get it, but you couldn't always get it. But when blue-black was overdrafted, there was a while where it felt really, really good to be in blue-white. So then it felt like there was a while where you wanted to be Esper. White-black didn't seem bad. Playing blue was better than not playing blue. But if you kind of stayed in that space, you could be, you know, either blue-white or blue-black or, you know, maybe white-black if you saw a you know, a number of the white-black uncommons. I think a lot of people converged in that space pretty early and simultaneously, and there was a point where red and green were both very underdrafted. Some people, allegedly, learned to capitalize on red being open and uh, reportedly had success with red decks. I, myself, never did. I was able to cobble together some playable red decks when red was wide open. I had a lot of success splashing a few red cards, but I was never happy with my decks that had a lot of mountains in them. I think red is just really, really underpowered in this format, and uh, even when it was at its most underdrafted, under didn't seem appealing to me to try to play in large quantities. 
Green, on the other hand, I think is good. And once it was underdrafted um, and the other cards were known and contested, green became a great place to be. I think Eccentric Farmer is absolutely at the like on par with all the other top commons in the set, uh, not appreciably worse than or- Organ Hoarder. And green's uncommons are outstanding. Green doesn't have a lot of depth at common, but that doesn't hurt you too much if green is being underdrafted and you get a, just a bunch of premium uncommons and then like ideally multiple eccentric farmers and you can play a few other green commons and it's fine. Once the Esper stuff started to get too contested and I started to draft green, I kind of gradually figured out more and more about how to draft multicolor and for the last week or two or three I've been drafting almost exclusively multicolor base green or base blue green decks, uh, learning a lot about cards that are important there and how to do it. I've discussed it in my last few podcast episodes, as well as I think my last uh, article for Star City. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that here, but it has continued to feel just like very strong and generally safe to draft multicolor in this format, which I think is interesting just on a like set evaluation level where the fixing in this set seems fine but not exceptional, but uh, I think it's strong enough and positioned appropriately to support multicolor decks, meaning that there's a relatively high density of relatively bad fixing, um, which is like the cards are pretty good at fixing you, but they're at a bad enough rate that people who aren't serious about it don't want them. Like, the, a normal two-color deck doesn't want to take some fixing cards to be able to support a splash. And I think that most, like, most of the normal decks want to be two-color no-splash. And so because the fixing that exists is exactly bad enough that it doesn't get, like, contested by other people, the one or two people at a table who are trying to uh, splash get all of it and when you get all of it then it becomes really really easy to support some pretty outlandish mana bases as far as like what that means about how to just read a set and figure out whether this is a set that's going to work that way i think it's tough because you need to know okay exactly how good is this fixing is it good enough that it'll let my deck work but not so good that aggro decks or like mid-range decks in general are going to want to pick some of it it up to try to splash. And that's just going to be really, really hard to evaluate before playing with it. So I think that this is something to like keep an eye out and like a dynamic to understand, but it's going to be one that's really, really hard to just like identify immediately unless you're very experienced at doing it. Anyway, I do think, you know, one of the things that's interesting to think about when you think back on a set is okay so what's going what should i think is going on here in like flashback drafts like if this sets available three years from now five years ago five years from now whatever on arena i'm drafting with packs on magic online whatever what should i remember about uh drafting this set and try to do so you could approach it from oh, well, by then people will probably have forgotten a lot and so I should just go to the level one deck and draft blue-black. Or you could say, well, people will forget all the nuance and just remember that blue-black was the best deck, so I should draft anything but blue-black. If you're on anything but blue-black, what should you draft? Uh, My recommendation would be just five-color prioritize fixing, take all the good cards. If you just start by drafting good cards, then if people in general don't know how to evaluate the set, you get a lot of good cards and it works, you can play them all. So I I certainly feel like my approach to this format in perpetuity from here, given that I'm not going to be drafting it uh, a lot for very much more time, is probably going to be to approach this format as a presumed multicolor drafter which is to say I won't expect that everyone's doing that, but it is what I would try to do. I mentioned the lack of like good aggressive three drops. Like every playable three drop 
is either at a higher than common rarity or it's good because it provides value. And I wanted to talk about how the effect that that has on the format is that the Agridex don't have, like, they, they can't curve out with powerful cards to, like, beat you. They, like, have good one and two drops, but then, like, potentially kind of peter out a little bit. And because the, they're trying to kill you with one and two drops, a little bit of life gain goes a long way because the one and two drops just don't have that much power. And that is one of the many things that contributes to life gain being pretty key to stabilizing this format and one of the things that makes it hard to be aggressive unless you get the premium uncommon aggressive three drops. The other thing that's just kind of interesting about like what's going on in terms of like power level at different spots in the curve in this format is that this is a format with really good one mana creatures. I think that in general, uh, looking at how good are the one drops, is this a format where people are casting a creature on one or not is a pretty important just like thing to identify about a format. I think it changes how limited play is an appreciable amount. This is a one mana heavy or a one drop heavy limited format. You end up with kind of this like unusual curve where like one drops are often more important than three drops. And I think that regardless of what kind of deck you are in this format in general, I think that one of the really important things to have uh, to just like be competitive in this format is a low curve with lots of like action that you can do in the early game. And by early game, I mean like turn one, turn two, turn three. But also to have mana sync such that you don't run out of stuff to do going late, which isn't available in all formats, but is in this format because of Disturb and Flashback and some other things, but those in particular, but also just like the additional, like the easy card advantage from Organ Hoarder and making sure you keep drawing spells with Larder Zombie and stuff like that. But the format's very good at letting you spend all of your mana, and so if you can't do that, you're going to be at a big disadvantage. So all of my strongest feeling decks had very, very low curves, such that they would spend all of their mana on turn one, turn two, turn three, but also keep spending all of their mana on turn six, seven, eight. And I, I think it's like pretty obvious that anytime you can do that, your deck is going to be better than a deck that can't. But this is a format that just the density and structure of the mana sinks really means that you, it's easy enough to be in that market that you have to be in that market. Yeah, I, I think just across the board, the, my best decks were the ones that did that. That's kind of my big picture. Here's what was happening. Here are like the metagame forces. Here's the evolution of the format stuff. Now I want to jump into the four archetypes that I haven't covered yet. Uh, Blue-black, black-green, red-black, and red-green. Just some quick hits about uh, those archetypes. Just, you know, make sure it's all out there somewhere. So blue-black... I think it's a very well understood archetype. I know a lot of other content creators covered it very early. If you've played this format, you've certainly played against it a bunch. You've probably drafted it yourself. Big picture, decayed zombies are very good. Basically every card that makes them is playable to strong and you want to prioritize making a lot of them and then having cards let you do something beyond just attacking once with them. Outside of that, the like density of good cards is just really really high uh, it's hard to like go wrong in terms of getting enough playables there are some you know traps to avoid some bad cards that people you know put in their decks sometimes but for the most part like the cards are just good if you prioritize cards that generate any sort of value paying attention to like decayed zombies or meaningful value they'll do well Obviously, like the most, the best commons to look for are Diagraph Horde, Ecstatic Awakener, and the Removal and Siege Zombie in black, uh, followed by, you know, you want some Hobbling Zombie and Crawl from the Cellar, that kind of stuff. And then in blue, obviously, Organ Hoarder, any of the commons that make zombies, and Larger Zombie and Baithook Angler. I think, you know, that basically covers it. Obviously, there are a bunch of premium uncommons that you likely know about at this point. It's a, a pretty straightforward archetype. I don't want to exactly call it an aggro deck, but I think that it wants to be proactive. I think that it doesn't have as good of a late game as some of the other blue decks, and 
the black cards that are that are that exist in the one for one space can get outvalued by the decks that are all two for ones. And so if you play against someone who doesn't care about removal, they will likely go over the top of what you're doing if you're blue black. So you want to use your removal to leverage getting damage in and then use your decayed zombies to finish them off. You shouldn't necessarily think of yourself as like an aggro deck in the traditional sense. You don't necessarily care about pushing damage every turn and there are decks that are going to be going under you, but you do, you're like a mid-range proactive deck. Black green, focus on uh, low curve, staying alive. Black green is, it's interesting to compare it to blue black where you both of them have the like abundance of black removal that can potentially line up poorly against people with more card advantage. But I guess I feel like green actually offers more late game inevitability than blue does in this format. So I feel like black green is actually stronger late than blue green. I feel like blue is actually a slightly more tempo oriented and green is a more value oriented color relative to each other in this format, which is slightly unusual. So I think with black green, you're more of a control deck. You want to focus on, I'm just going to like kill stuff and stay alive. And then I'm going to win with inevitability due to recursion flashback and likely having some very high impact creatures that I can cast multiple times. You want to make sure that you at the very least have diagraph hordes, better yet, some kind of really powerful rare mythic type creatures that you are uh, getting back with Crawlfman Cellar or Dryad's Revival or Diagraph Rebirth. I think that's the name of it, the Black Green Uncommon. So between all of those, it's a lot of ways to like keep getting your threats back. And then when you combine those things, all of which can be played with your, from your graveyard with just like a light touch of self-mill from potentially tapping at the window and obviously especially Eccentric Farmer, you start to just get a lot of value out of your graveyard. And the value out of your graveyard is all cards that are pretty expensive. The blue and white cards tend to be cheaper than the black and green cards to cast from your graveyard. And so that means that you just have a lot of mana sinks kind of naturally built into your color. So you want to prioritize, for the most part, having a lot of one, two, and three mana cards. Obviously, a lot of that's going to come in the form of cheap black removal, but also uh, cards like Death Bonnet Sprout and Ecstatic Awakener are really important, as well as kind of like any two drop, and then the nice good value threes like the Hobbling Zombies and Eccentric Farmers. And then any really premium expensive cards, which is like Rise of the Ants and Diagraph Horde and higher rarity cards. I think this archetype is actually pretty good, as long as you can focus on all that. Uh, having a low curve and just kind of trusting your cards to carry you into a late game. Just focus on spending your mana appropriately. Red-Black. Vampires felt like it was only good if it had multiple vampire socialites. And outside of that, it was just like not really a thing. The Red-Black decks that felt strongest to me were very spell heavy and then used creatures like Thermo Alchemist, Morbid Opportunist, and Smoldering Egg that rewarded you for having a lot of spells and just kind of hanging out and playing a control game. The 4-3 uh, Rummaging Vampire Foragers or whatever was like a reasonable part of this deck just to like make sure you don't flood out and keep finding you know gas to get more removal to kill their stuff. Seize the Storm's a solid finisher here. Geist Flame Reservoir is very good in this deck. I think that this deck like a lot of decks in this format, especially outside of blue, relied uh, pretty largely on higher rarities. And then I think, you know, there was a like more common reliant red-black vampire deck if you have the good aggro vampire uncommons, socialites and ambusher, but uh, for the most part, vampires felt pretty underpowered if your opponent was doing any kind of like you know good defensive stuff life gain it or if your draw was just like not perfect while the like more spell-based control deck didn't it's not a deck i drafted a lot because if i'm in that space i'd rather just 
have blue or green cards in my deck, rather than more red and black cards. Like I would just play those premium red and black cards with blue or green cards. But I think if red and black are open enough, you can do it without them and it's fine. Um, if you have the like premium uncommons to build around there, not a very good archetype. And then red, green, this was the weakest archetype. I think werewolves were basically fully a trap. They're just weak cards that are not better in multiples. Like theoretically, it's like, oh, but if I have a bunch of them, then the early ones make it so that it's night when I play the later ones and it's like better to take a turn off to make it night or whatever. Well, no, it, you have a bunch of them. It's just like easier for your opponent to prioritize making it night to make your whole deck not work. And their base power level is just low. And like the more weak cards you put together in your deck when they have really loose synergy, the less you're going to win. The best version of red green is similar space to the best version of red black, which is to say mostly just like removal and flashback cards and seize the storm. Again, this isn't a deck that I personally drafted very much because if I'm in this space, I would just play more colors. If I'm putting a bunch of flashback spells in my deck, I want cards like eccentric farmer and organ hoarder that mill them for me and find, fix my mana and so you could hypothetically do it, but I just, I don't know why you wouldn't play more colors. That's it. That's what I have to tell you. Those are the uh, missing archetypes and my overview of the format. So I'm going to open this up to Twitch chat. Obviously the topics here are kind of all over the place. So to give you some direction about what kind of questions I'm interested in fielding, really, I'm happy to just uh, kind of have a discussion here about anything you're interested in overview of the format wise can be asking questions uh, that are archetype specific, stuff I touched on or didn't touch on. Kind of really just like any any questions you have about the format, I think now would be an appropriate time for. While I'm getting those, thank you very much to my new uh, patrons this week over at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes, Eduardo and Hobsworth. Really appreciate the support. Looking forward to getting into a new format. And um, if you are interested in supporting the podcast and getting all of the notes and logs and all that other stuff as we get into a new format, um, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. So uh, let's turn it over to some questions. First question, uh, did we have to go through the evolution of like blue-black getting overdrafted to get to the point where it was right to draft multicolor um, or was it always available and strong to be there if you and it was just a matter of like uh well whatever yeah so i do think early on like blue black was the low-hanging fruit it was easy to find easy to draft you could just like draft it and win and if you had been drafting like multicolor instead i think that if you knew exactly how to do it and what all the good cards were and stuff I think it was it was probably there. I think that it could compete with those early blue-black decks. I think the biggest liability, honestly, would be if you were playing at Mythic and playing against the people who had the good blue and black decks, they would have so many Diagraph hordes that they would regularly mess up your graveyard. And Diagraph horde itself is so good against the multicolor blue-green decks that I think just the density of diagraph hordes that you would play against at mythic would be the hardest part of finding success with multicolor decks early in the format but i think you could probably overcome that if we're, we're just like all right well let's teleport everything we know about the format at the end back to week one like you're probably gonna win anyway and that, that's kind of in the space where it's just like well yeah if you're much better than your opponents you can beat them with whatever you feel like doing which is like kind of an unfair way to answer this question, but also just kind of like the nature of, hey, how does this work before people figure stuff out? So I don't know. The answer is I'm not sure and it depends on how you look at things, I guess. Next up, any big lessons on card evaluation I'm going to take with me into future formats? I think the nature of fixing here is honestly the biggest takeaway for me like a lot of it's just stuff like before the format was released it was like wow this these are like three basically like hard removal spells in black for one two and three mana that seems really strong and then they were and it's like well i didn't learn a lot there 
And like, yeah, these three twos look pretty medium. They were. Cool. And as far as just like, oh, they undercosted the decayed mechanics. Like, well, that doesn't really tell me anything. You know, like, like that's not likely going to have a lot of direct analogies to other formats. So I think I think the biggest takeaway is just like this sweet spot on fixing where the rate's like not high enough for it to be highly contested, but the, the volume is high enough that there is a bunch of it for people who want it. And then like a format that doesn't look like it supports five color the way that, you know, a lot of like dedicated multicolor formats do does support full five color decks, um, which is kind of interesting. My feel from Orzov. I would say Orzov shrunk on me over the format. I don't think that's how people say that, but people do talk about things growing on them. And this did the opposite where early on, I thought that it was like pretty respectable, kind of, you know, just below like tier 1.5 or whatever, like not as good as uh, the premium blue decks, but just below them. And I think it was more middle of the pack, like not appreciably better than black red. I think I like it less than black green. I think relied pretty heavily on some good uncommons. I think like Orzov at common has felt really easy to beat. It's just like some mopey creatures, the end. So yeah, I don't know. I think Orzov is a color combination that was not particularly strong in this format. Next question, I feel many formats age with getting more greedy with the uh, color selection slash use and decks. I may be misjudging this. Is this the first format in a while to reward doing this? I hope the answer is no, because it seems to be something I do frequently. I mentioned a while ago, I don't remember who's on the podcast or just on the stream, that I've noticed that as things that I like to do become more contested, I kind of drift into just putting more colors in my decks that I can still use the cards that I like, but maneuver safely into open space. I definitely did a lot of that in Strixhaven and Kaldheim. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's like more a thing about formats or a thing about me, but it it is certainly part of my experience one way or another. Next question. Startle is a card you're probably higher on than any other creator I follow, and I think you're right. Could we get a rear-looking overview of why Startle is so great? So Startle, amusingly, is a card that I haven't played a lot lately because it's less of a priority in the multicolor decks. It's fantastic in blue-black especially. Really, it's good in the two-color blue decks. And the reason it's not good in the multicolor blue decks is that it isn't active in the graveyard and you want most of your non-creature spells to be active in the graveyard in the multicolor decks. And it's also kind of small ball. It's like a way to spend mana somewhat productively and the graveyard decks are so good at spending their mana productively that this like extra mana sink type card isn't really that good. But in any of the decks where you're getting into combat more, and uh, a way to productively spend some mana is more valuable, and you're using uh, zombie tokens well. Startle's amazing. A lot of what I was using Startle for is a way to get a zombie early to use with Larger Zombie and Ecstatic Awakener. And I would suspect that where other people have had less success with Startle than I have is that I'm just really happy with two mana, make a two two draw, make a two two token draw a card, and like I have a very, very high likelihood of just firing startle off on turn two. And I'm happy to like think of it as like a value to drop. And I think most people are thinking of it as a trick and likely too likely to play it as a trick where they're insufficiently willing to just cycle it and get a creature. I also think that they're slightly less likely than I am to prioritize the cards that let you tap the decayed zombies for value. And so they would get less value out of start cycling the startle anyway. Just the fact that it was so easy to get more than face value out of zombies. And also the thing that I mentioned about how three drops are so bad means that there's a lot of combat between one and two power creatures. Uh, because people are playing a lot of one and two drops, and even the three drops have like similar size, like similar stats. 
meant that minus two power was really, really likely to lead to a favorable combat, especially since even at four mana, you're looking at a lot of search party captains and organ hoarders and Gavity silversmiths and these creatures that are just not that big. So while startle is a pretty small effect on combat, when all the creatures that people are playing are also small, it's just really, really easy for that to swing a combat, and then you get, you know, the full like three for one or whatever, however you want to count startle. What are your thoughts on picking strong creatures slash synergy pieces over removal in early picks? I like it more than most people. In this format in particular, it felt like there was an abundance of removal such that you didn't really need to prioritize it. Also, removal is not necessarily well positioned against everybody. I just want to take the best cards and often the best cards aren't removal and removal is just like a little bit overrated you know it's they're commons they're replaceable they're one for ones they don't necessarily automatically pull you far ahead obviously cheap instant speed removal has a lot of different ways of meaningfully pulling you ahead in the game and then like less expensive less instant speed removal does important things in terms of answering bombs and stuff but i also feel like a lot of people's attachment to removal is more psychological than practical, where people want to feel like they're not cold to a card. Like, oh, if what if my opponent plays some bomb? I need to answer it. Like, having one additional removal spell in your deck doesn't guarantee that you can answer a bomb instead of not. You might not draw the removal spell before they kill you. It might have been the thing that you drew that you needed to use on their creature that was pressuring you early then you don't still have it around when they play their bomb later or whatever. Obviously, the more you have, the more removal you have, the more likely it is that you end up with a removal spell that lines up with a bomb. But also, the more likely it is that you play a longer game and your opponent has a higher chance of drawing and casting their bomb. Or, you know, the less likely you are to be able to hold off their creatures that don't matter with your own creatures, so the more likely you are to have to waste your removal. It is good to have access to removal. There are some decks that are better than others at getting more use out of each of the cards in their deck. They have more selection, more recursion, and having removal in those decks is particularly important. But just in general, I don't have, like, I don't know, sacredness about, like, a number of removal spells that I need or anything. And that means that I just want to take the better cards and removal isn't just like categorically stronger than creatures or whatever next question this is the first format i've drafted seriously how should i adjust my thinking when drafting future formats well it's probably going to depend on the format but hmm, that's that's a tough one i talked about the stuff that i think is exceptional in this format so i guess just like reverse engineer from that to oh if these things were exceptional maybe other formats are going to be different but I think that that's going to be very inefficiently answered in general rather than on a case-by-case -case basis. So stay tuned or uh, check back on content on other formats to see how to draft them would be my uh, most efficient way to answer that question. Do you think there are any untapped archetypes that could have performed better with more time to develop, or do you feel the format parallel or mostly solved? So... This is an interesting question in terms of like, are we asking about by a person, by the community, reflected in the stats, by me specifically? Magic is kind of all about individuals finding local maximums or maximas, figuring like, I did this, it worked for me, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to refine this process. I'm going to get better and better at doing the things that have been successful for me. And you end up just kind of like naturally grabbing, gravitating toward a good version of whatever was successful for you. So I have gravitated toward a good version of the way that I've been drafting multicolor. If I had been drafting red a lot, could I have found a better red deck than I've found so far? Yes, definitely. Do I think that that red deck that I could have found would be better than the multicolor deck that I've found? I don't think so. If I thought that, I would have put more time into researching it. Am I right that the deck that I have found is better than every deck I could have explored further? I don't have a particularly high level of confidence in that. So are there archetypes that are likely better than what I've found that I could potentially find um, given infinite time? 
Probably. Does this answer your question very specifically? No. Does it give you the best answer I can in this space? I, I think this is what I have for you. I've been seeing a lot of decks that run nothing higher than four drops winning. Why do you think that is? Uh, it's like I was saying. I, I think that it's really, really, really important to spend all of your mana early because of all of the mana available uh, to be spent out of your graveyard, you don't need expensive cards to keep participating in the game. And also, because the removal is so good, spending a lot of mana on a card that can just get killed for one, two, or three mana is a losing proposition, especially because the cost of playing those cards is higher than you think because you might have like not been able to spend mana on turn three because you had a five mana card in your hand instead of a three mana card. Yeah, this is just a format where cheaper cards, like expensive cards need to be amazing to be worth putting in a deck. And uh, you can get a lot of power out of the cards that cost four or less and you just don't need anything that the more expensive cards are offering. There are a handful of cards that cost more than four that are good and that you should prioritize playing when you can, but you shouldn't put a five mana card in your deck just because you're like worried that your four mana cards are too low impact or something. You should only play a card that costs more than four if it's just a great card. Next up, any standout cards that tend to be overvalued even still? <sighs> there are probably cards that are overvalued, but cards that are overvalued don't stand out to me because I just don't see them or take them. And I haven't been following like other content or looking at the trends quite closely enough to see like, oh, people keep drafting this card or, oh, all the other content creators are like really high in this thing that I don't think is good. With that understood, I'm gonna say Festival Crasher because people are high in it and I still haven't figured out how to make Red actually win, but I also don't know that they're wrong or anything. But that that's a card that I continue to value less than the people who are into it. Next up, I didn't find much success with blue-white. Can I describe the blue-white versus blue-black matchup and why blue-white was favorable? Yeah, so blue-white has a lot of disturbed creatures and self-mill and in some versions, ominous roost. And blue-black this format is low on flyers in general. So much of the flying that exists is just like on the backside of disturbed creatures, which meant that the little disturbed creatures were pretty good at being able to attack, which meant that like random little, you know, 1 1, 1 2, 2 1 flyers pestering blue black were not like easy to blank. And that meant that you had to either kill your opponent or use removal on them. And killing your opponent was often a tall order because of the role of Lunark Veteran in Blue-White. And so it led to a spot where Blue-White was kind of just like successfully swarming Blue-Black and Blue-Black couldn't close before the flyers that they couldn't deal with well won which is a long way of you know saying what I'd been saying before, that blue-white plays cards that are cheap and contain inherent card advantage, therefore removal is bad against them. Blue-black has removal spells instead of like Lunark Veterans and other decayed things. The removal spells that you get out of black line up poorly against the cheap creatures that you get out of white. So when you both have similar blue cards, and one person's pairing them with cards that line up well against the other person's cards. The person with the cards that line up well outperforms the person with the cards that line up poorly. The uh, easiest way to flip this is with, if you manage to line up Diagraph Horde properly against your opponent's graveyard stuff, or if you stick something like a Morbid Opportunist. But I think overall, Blue-White, I think, is like naturally a little bit better positioned in that matchup. Next question. What has been the most rewarding build-around card for me in this draft set? Eccentric Farmer? Eccentric Farmer as a build-around rewards playing a lot of cards that can be cast from your graveyard so that you get value out of milling yourself, having Evolving Wild specifically, and getting double value out of it as super fixing, and 
continuing to make land drops so that you can use all of the expensive flashback cards that you have. When you combine those things, it uses the best things in the format well, and its size is good for like blocking and staying alive. It, it basically just does everything I want to do. I do a quick, quick recap of the fixing uh, to look out for, for the multicolored deck, for the record. The most important pieces by far are Evolving Wilds and Eccentric Farmer, specifically when you can combine them. Those were the premium fixing that let you like really do it. But then you also have a tear down. Well, you, have, you also have uh, Recoil Creeper, which is just super, super strong because it fixes for five color and is just a high power level card. And then the other commons that you have are Jack-O-Lantern, Rejuvenator, Dawn, something or other, the 2-4 the that gains 3 life and taps for a man of any color, and the Path to the Festival. So Pumpkin is basically a free roll if you're milling yourself a lot, and the more you mill yourself, the more it contributes really well to like making it very easy to splash a single card. And then Path to the Festival and Rejuvenator are kind of your like reliable and will reliably table fixing that will let you like round out your fixing if you didn't get enough of the premium stuff. Next question, would removing Diagraph Horde from the set be a plus or minus for the format in my opinion? Wow, that's a that's a really complicated one to unpack. Like it black is like more powerful than average, so removing a black card would make black less more powerful than average. It is also like a very powerful card against doing stuff that is strong to do in the format, which means that you could do more of the stuff that's strong. I thought that playing out of your graveyard was already very good, and so I think Diagraph Horde is probably a valuable check on the power level of the graveyard stuff. So I'm going to say removing it, I think, would be a minus because I think it would leave the graveyard stuff too good. I also think that black isn't the color that, like, while black is too good, I think blue is, like, substantially more too good. So I'm going to guess that it would be a, the format would be slightly worse without Diagraph Horde, assuming everything else did the same. Next question, I am well known to not like aura-based removal, and it was bad in this format. What would a format need to look like for that to be good? So aura-based removal that has been good. I think the one from um, Theros that you could spend mana to exile the creature in a format with Heliod's Pilgrim where you could tutor for it was a combination that meant that it was good. I think the narcolepsy in Rise of Eldrazi where it was one of not especially many cheap ways to answer the very, very large creatures that existed in that format. So where it's like uniquely lining up well against cards that are important to answer is something to look for. Any Anything where like the fact that it is an enchantment means that you get extra value out of it. Anywhere where it is just a better rate than other options. Another spot where it's just like a better rate than other options was like M14, where mono blue is super, super good, and sensory deprivation, I think is the name of it, one blue enchanted creature gets minus three, minus O, was just a really good way to like buy time against any aggressive creatures so that you could win with your abundance of ridiculous card draw, would be another. So basically it's just spots where it is giving you some kind of unique value or offering a better rate than other removal. So literally costing less mana. All right, next question. When I talked about the evolution of the metagame, you got the impression that I'm uh, very amenable to the fact that one or two colors might dominate a format. Can I talk about the small decisions and adjustments you make as a player to keep a format interesting despite severe imbalance in archetypes? As a content creator, I'm kind of priced into uh, continuing to play and explore formats that are imbalanced. So I, I'm less looking critically like, is this a good format because it's imbalanced and more, you know, as you identified, what can I do to like explore this format further and find it interesting despite that? I think it's kind of similar to Constructed, where there are often constructed formats that end up dominated by 
an archetype or a few archetypes. And what I personally have found when I play Constructed a lot is that the more um, you play Constructed and the more invested you get in Constructed, the more fun it is because all of the little decisions have context to have meaning and stop being arbitrary and you get enough of a sense of like what's happening and why that you can make interesting nuanced decisions about exactly which cards you're going to play exactly what you're going to put in your sideboard exactly when you're bringing it in you start to form like elaborate sideboard plans for all of your matchups where it's not even just oh i know these cards are good against this archetype and these cards are bad against this archetype but it's in this matchup, I try to have the game go this way. So even though I know this card is pretty good against this deck, I actually want this other card because it will help me build the exact kind of game that I find that I win in this matchup. And you can start to build plans that are tailored to your precise play style and understanding of the format and the metagame and the matchup and all that. And when I'm just starting to get into a format, it's a lot more, let me see what other people have done. Let me choose what looks interesting. Let me copy a deck. Let me see what other innovations are being made by other people. Let me see if these make sense to me and let me copy paste those into what I'm doing. And to me, it's a lot more interesting once you get to the point where you can be kind of like iterating on your own, coming up with your own ideas and having a lot of like elaborate reasoning for why you're doing those things. And I think the same thing is just true and limited, where it's like, okay, well, I'm playing this color combination against this color combination a lot, but I'm still developing a sense of understanding about how the games go, which exact commons are like good and bad and why, exactly what I want my curve to be. See, it is about just, you know, finding smaller edges and like little things and caring about that. <laughs> like, I don't know, just like get real nerdy about it. It, it really does just come down to care about the, incre the incremental improvement and the little things. If all that you're interested in is understanding the big picture and that's the problem that's appealing to you to solve, then imbalance limited formats are not going to be fun to you. But if you want to find like, you know, really deep understanding of anything, you can just always dive further and further into it and find some joy in any tiny level up you discover. And I'm not talking about in magic. I think literally whatever your hobby is, the you know, more you do it, you find some little grain and you know, you can either care about that or not care about it. And if you care about it, then it's going to be fun to find that stuff. Next up, I often pick up fixing in anticipation for splashing, but often end up getting no spells worth splashing for. It's becoming an unnerving pattern for me. What kinds of cards should make me think about splashing when there are no bombs? The easiest answer to that is the multicolor uncommons. Outside of that, sometimes removal spells, diagraph horde, but really, it's the multicolor uncommons because a lot of the decks that splash well mill themselves, and that means that you're like finding your fixing and your like splash cards, and you're getting higher graveyard density and power out of those, like the flashback uncommons in particular. I think, especially, you know, when you're talking about like, oh, I'm picking up, like the deck that I'm drafting where I'm picking up fixing early is often base blue green. And if I'm blue-green, then it's, you know, generally better to splash flashback cards because I have, like, root coil creepers that use them well. So uh, I think gold uncommons, removal, and bombs are, like, precisely what you should be looking for. Next question. Do you feel like this set was deep enough that data was not as accurate as, say, AFR? So what does this tell us about future ones? I don't really like the idea of saying data is or isn't accurate. The data that we have is the data that we have, and the things that it says are true truly say the things, and then it's just about how you interpret that and what you apply it to, and I think that that's largely personal. I think that 
whether you typically draft things that are similar to what other people typically draft is the biggest indicator of whether the data will tell you meaningful things uh, outside of how good are you at reading the data and interpreting it properly. Obviously, the more you're doing stuff that's unusual, the less usefully predictive the data is going to be about your experience. So like Strixhaven was a format where the data was not very useful to me for the most part once I started doing unusual stuff with Serpentine Curve. What does it tell us for future sets? The same thing I just said. The, the closer you are doing to, like, the more you think that what you're doing is similar to what other people are doing, the more the data applies. The less similar it is, the less the data applies. I don't think that there's a lot of nuance beyond that. I mean, there's always more nuance, but I think that that big picture is pretty consistent and accurate and is going to like get you most of the way there. Next question, is there a big shift of level between gold and platinum? Almost certainly yes, based on the way that you move through gold into platinum. The meanings of ranks changes from the first few days of a season to of a month to the end of the month as like gold at the end of the month means a different thing like platinum at the end of the month means a very different thing than platinum on day one of the month when all the mythic players from the previous month became platinum but uh just in general uh, gold is like pretty easy to get through so if someone hasn't gotten through it then uh, they are not a dedicated drafter. That doesn't necessarily mean they're bad, just they don't draft a lot. And that's going to be significant in terms of its difference between, uh, like, platinum players might draft a lot, gold players basically don't. Apologies to anyone who is gold, drafts a lot, and is offended by that statement. I'm sorry. I do think you're in the minority. <laughs> Next question. How much do you enjoy this set compared to others? It's like these questions are always hard to answer, and th this relates back to my my answer about how to enjoy broken formats and like finding the joy in like going deep on little details and stuff. Uh, I enjoy the way that I've been approaching limited these last the last six months or whatever. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm basically well positioned to have fun with kind of like any limited format which means that it's like relatively hard and not useful for me to compare them i think objectively it's fine it's like not an all-timer but it's not horrible next question do you believe celestis will be picked over skyclave relic in the next cube they are slightly likely to put a few too many cards that care about day and night in the next cube, which helps Celestis a little bit. In some cubes, Kicker on Skyclave Relic matters. Most of the time it doesn't, and this question is phrased to care less about that. When there are a lot of ways to destroy three mana mana rocks, that, and they're prioritized and played main, there are often better things to kill than three mana mana rocks, so I guess I don't care that much about Skyclave Relics and Destructibility, so I'm going to guess Celestis is better, and I don't know why I answered this question because it's very off-topic. Sorry to anyone who was not interested in that question. <laughs> this has been a long one, uh, which is fine. We had a lot of good questions to answer. I'm caught up now, so I'm going to wrap it up. Hopefully you uh, liked this foray into a slightly different structure. And if not, uh, don't worry, we'll be back to the uh, more regularly scheduled approach once the next set's out. Oh, one last thing before I wrap this up. I don't know exactly which day my podcast is going to be next week because I haven't deeply scheduled, studied exactly what's going on in terms of uh, the release schedule and everything. If there will be much more and better information available Thursday or Friday or Saturday rather than Wednesday. I will delay the podcast next week as I've done uh, for recent set releases. The next episode might come out at a slightly delayed time. As always, there will be one per week. Things may or may not get juggled. Um, if you're more familiar with the schedule than I am, you might be able to anticipate what I'll end up deciding to do. For me, I'll be kind of playing it by ear. By ear. So thank you, everyone. And I'll be back 
sometime next week to uh, take a first look at Kingston Battle.